0: Chapter Six of Uncanny Stories by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rhiannon Damon. The Victim. Stephen Ackroyd, Mister Greathead's chauffeur, was sulking in the garage. Everybody was afraid of him. Everybody hated him, except Mister Greathead his master, and Dorsey, his sweetheart. And even Dorsey now, after yesterday! Night had come. On one side the yard gates stood open to the black tunnel of the drive. On the other the high moor rose above the wall, immense, darker than the darkness. Stephen's lantern in the open doorway of the garage, and Dorsey's lamp in the kitchen window, through a blond twilight into the yard between. From where he sat, slantways on the step of the car, he could see through the lighted window the table with the lamp and Dorsey's sewing huddled up in a white heap as she left it just now, when she had jumped up and gone away, because she was afraid of him. She had gone straight to Mr. Greathead in his study, and Stephen, sulking, had flung himself out into the yard. He stared into the window, thinking, thinking. Everybody hated him. He could tell by the damned spiteful way they looked at him in the bar of the King's arms, kind of sideways and slink-eyed, turning their dirty tails and shuffling out of his way. He had said to Dorsey he'd like to know what he had done. He'd just dropped in for his glass as usual. He'd looked round and said good evening, civil, and the dirty tykes took no more notice of him than if he'd been a toad. Mrs. Oldershaw, Dorsey's aunt, she hated him. Boiled ham face, swelling with spite, shoving his glass at the end of her arm without speaking, as if he'd been a bloody cockroach. All because of the thrashing he'd given young Ned Oldershaw. If she didn't want the cub's neck broken, she'd better keep him out of mischief. Young Ned knew what he'd get if he came meddling with his sweetheart. It had happened yesterday afternoon, Sunday, when he had gone down with Dorothy to the King's Arms to see her aunt. They were sitting out on the wooden bench against the inn wall when young Ned began it, He could see him now with his arm round Dorsey's neck and his mouth gaping. And Dorsey laughing like a silly fool, and the old woman snorting and shaking. He could hear him. She's my cousin if she is your sweetheart. You can't stop me kissing her. Couldn't he? Why, what did they think? When he'd given up his good job at the Darlington Motor Works to come to East Thwaite, and black Mr. Greathead's boots, chop wood, carry coal and water for him, and drive his shabby second-hand car. Not that he cared what he did, so long as he could live in the same house with Dorsey Oldershaw. It wasn't likely he'd sit like a bloody Moses looking on while Ned... To be sure, he had half killed him. He could feel Ned's neck swelling and rising up under the pressure of his hands, his fingers. He had struck him first, flinging him back against the inn wall. Then he had pinned him, till the men ran up and dragged him off. And now they were all against him. Dorsey was against him. She had said she was afraid of him. Stephen, she had said. That MAIDA KILLED HIM. Well, perhaps next time he'll know better than to come meddling with my lass. I'm not thy lass. If the canna keep thy hands off, folks, I should be fear for my life of thee. Ned weren't doing no harm. If he does it again, if he comes between thee and me, Dorsey, I shall do him in. No, the manna talk that road. A tooth. Anybody that comes between thee and me, love, I shall do him in. If t'was thy aunt, I should wring her neck, same as I wrung Ned's. And if it was me, Stephen? If it were thee. If the left me. Ah, oh, don't thou ask me, Dorothy. There, that's how the that scares me. But thou hast left me. "'Tis thy wedding-days thou'rt making. Ay, tis my wedding-claves.' She had started fingering the white stuff, looking at it with her head on one side, smiling prettily. Then, all of a sudden, she had flung it down in a heap and burst out crying. When he tried to comfort her, she pushed him off and ran out of the room to Mr. Greathead." It must have been half an hour ago, and she had not come back yet. He got up and went through the yard gates into the dark drive. Turning there, he came to the house front and the lighted window of the study. Hidden behind a clump of yew, he looked in. Mr. Greathead had risen from his chair. He was a little old man, shrunk and pinched, with a bowed narrow back, and slender neck under his grey hanks of hair. Dorsey stood before him, facing Stephen. The lamplight fell full on her. Her sweet flower face was flushed. She had been crying. Mr. Greathead spoke. "'Well, that's my advice,' he said. "'Think it over, Dorsey, before you do anything.' That night Dorsey packed her boxes, and the next day at noon, when Stephen came in for his dinner, she had left the lodge. She had gone back to her father's house in Garthdale. She wrote to Stephen saying that she had thought it over, and found she daren't marry him. She was afraid of him. She would be too unhappy. That was the old man." The old man. He had made her give him up. But for that, Dorsey would never have left him. She would never have thought of it herself. And she would never have got away if he had been there to stop her. It wasn't Ned. Ned was going to marry Nancy Peacock down at Morfe. Ned hadn't done any harm. It was Mr. Greathead who had come between them he hated Mr. Greathead. His hate became a nausea of physical loathing that never ceased. Indoors he served Mr. Greathead as footman and valet, waiting on him at meals, bringing the hot water for his bath, helping him to dress and undress, so that he could never get away from him. When he came to call him in the morning, stephen's stomach heaved at the sight of the shrunken body under the bedclothes the flushed pinched face with its peaked finicking nose upturned the thin silver tuft of hair pricked up above the pillow's edge stephen shivered with hate at the sound of the rattling old man's cough and the shoob-shoob of the feet shuffling along the flagged passages He had once had a feeling of tenderness for Mr. Greathead, as the tie that bound him to Dorsey. He even brushed his coat and hat tenderly, as if he loved them. Once Mr. Greathead's small, close smile, the greyish bud of the lower lip pushed out, the upper lip lifted at the corners, and his kind, thin, "'Thank you, my lad.' had made Stephen smile back, glad to serve Dorsey's master, and Mr. Greathead would smile again and say, "'It does me good to see your bright face, Stephen.' Now Stephen's face writhed in a tight contortion to meet Mr. Greathead's kindliness, while his throat ran dry and his heart shook with hate. At mealtimes from his place by the sideboard he would look on at Mr. Greathead eating, in a long, contemplative disgust. He could have snatched the plate away from under the slow, fumbling hands that hovered and hesitated. He would catch words coming into his mind. He ought to be dead. He ought to be dead to think that this thing that ought to be dead, this old, shriveled skin-bag of creaking bones, should come between him and Dorsey, should have power to drive Dorsey from him. One day, when he was brushing Mr. Greathead's soft felt hat, a paroxysm of hatred gripped him. He hated Mr. Greathead's hat, he took a stick and struck at it again and again. He threw it on the flags and stamped on it, clenching his teeth and drawing in his breath with a sharp hiss. He picked up the hat, looking round furtively, for fear lest Mr. Greathead, or Dorsey's successor, Mrs. Blankiron, should have seen him. He pinched and pulled it back into shape, and brushed it carefully, and hung it on the stand. He was ashamed, not of his violence, but of its futility. Nobody but a damned fool, he said to himself, would have done that. He must have been mad. It wasn't as if he didn't know what he was going to do. He had known ever since the day when Dorsey left him. "'I shan't be myself again till I've done him in,' he thought. He was only waiting till he had planned it out, till he was sure of every detail, till he was fit and cool. There must be no hesitation, no uncertainty at the last minute, above all no blind, headlong violence. Nobody but a fool would kill in mad rage and forget things, and be caught and swing for it. Yet that was what they all did. There was always something they hadn't thought of that gave them away. Stephen had thought of everything, even the date, even the weather. Mr. Greathead was in the habit of going up to London to attend the debates of a learned society he belonged to that held its meetings in May and November, he always travelled up by the five o'clock train so that he might go to bed and rest as soon as he arrived. He always stayed for a week and gave his housekeeper a week's holiday. Stephen chose a dark, threatening day in November, when Mr. Greathead was going up to his meeting, and Mrs. Blenkiron had left East Thwaite for Morfe by the early morning bus, so that there was nobody in the house but Mr. Greathead and Stephen. East Thwaite Lodge stands alone, grey, hidden between the shoulder of the moor and the ash-trees of its drive. It is approached by a bridle-path across the moor, a turning off the road that runs from East Thwaite in Rathdale to Shaw in Wesleydale, about a mile from the village and a mile from Hardraw Pass. No tradesman visited it. Mr. Greathead's letters and his newspaper were shot into a post-box that hung on the ash tree at the turn. The hot water laid on in the house was not hot enough for Mr. Greathead's bath, so that every morning, while Mr. Greathead shaved, Stephen came to him with a can of boiling water. Mr. Greathead, dressed in a mauve and grey-striped sleeping-suit, stood shaving himself before the looking-glass that hung on the wall beside the great white bath. Stephen waited with his hand on the cold tap, watching the bright curved rod of water falling with a thud and a splash. In the white stagnant light from the muffed window-pane the knife-blade flame of a small oil stove flickered queerly. The oil sputtered and stank. Suddenly, The wind hissed in the water pipes and cut off the glittering rod. To Stephen it seemed the suspension of all movement. He would have to wait there till the water flowed again before he could begin. He tried not to look at Mr. Greathead and the lean wattles of his lifted throat. He fixed his eyes on the long crack in the soiled green distemper of the wall. His nerves were on edge with waiting for the water to flow again. The fumes of the oil stove worked on them like a rank intoxicant. The soiled green wall gave him a sensation of physical sickness. He picked up a towel and hung it over the back of a chair. Thus he caught sight of his own face in the glass above Mr. Greathead's. It was livid against the soiled green wall. Stephen stepped aside to avoid it. "'Don't you feel well, Stephen?' "'No, sir.' Stephen picked up a small sponge and looked at it. Mr. Greathead had laid down his razor and was wiping the lather from his chin. At that instant, with a gurgling, spluttering haste, the water leaped from the tap. It was then that Stephen made his sudden, quiet rush. He first gagged Mr. Greathead with the sponge then pushed him back and back against the wall and pinned him there with both hands round his neck, as he had pinned Ned Oldshaw. He pressed in on Mr. Greathead's throat, strangling him. Mr. Greathead's hands flapped in the air, trying feebly to beat Stephen off. Then his arms, pushed back by the heave and thrust of Stephen's shoulders, dropped. Then Mr. Greathead's body sank. "'sliding along the wall and fell to the floor, Stephen still keeping his hold, "'mounting it, gripping it with his knees. "'His fingers tightened, pressing back the blood. "'Mr. Greathead's face swelled up. "'It changed horribly. "'There was a groaning and rattling sound in his throat. Stephen pressed in till it had ceased.' Then he stripped himself to the waist. He stripped Mr. Greathead of his sleeping suit and hung his naked body face downwards in the bath. He took the razor and cut the great arteries and veins in the neck. He pulled up the plug of the waste pipe and left the body to drain in the running water. He left it all day and all night. He had noticed that murderers swung just for want of attention to little things like that, messing up themselves and the whole place with blood, always forgetting something essential. He had no time to think of horrors. From the moment he had murdered Mr. Greathead, his own neck was in danger. He was simply using all his brain and nerve to save his neck. He worked with the stem cool hardness of a man going through with an unpleasant, necessary job. He had thought of everything. He had even thought of the dairy. It was built on to the back of the house, under the shelter of the high moor. You entered it through the scullery, which cut it off from the yard. The window-panes had been removed and replaced by sheets of perforated zinc a large corrugated glass skylight lit it from the roof, impossible either to see in or to approach it from the outside. It was fitted with a long black slate shelf, placed, for the convenience of buttermakers, at the height of an ordinary workbench. Stephen had his tools—a razor, a carving knife, a chopper, and a meat-saw—laid there ready beside a great pile of cotton waste. Early the next day he took Mr. Greathead's body out of the bath, wrapped a thick towel round the neck and head, carried it down to the dairy, and stretched it out on the slab. And there he cut it up into seventeen pieces. These he wrapped in several layers of newspaper, covering the face and the hands first because, At the last moment, they frightened him. He sewed them up in two sacks and hid them in the cellar. He burnt the towel and the cotton waste in the kitchen fire. He cleaned his tools thoroughly and put them back in their places. And he washed down the marble slab. And there wasn't a spot on the floor except for one flagstone where the pink rinsing of the slab had splashed over. He scrubbed it for half an hour— still seeing the rusty edges of the splash long after he had scoured it out. He then washed and dressed himself with care. As it was wartime, Stephen could only work by day, for a light in the dairy roof would have attracted the attention of the police. He had murdered Mr. Greathead on a Tuesday. It was now three o'clock on Thursday afternoon. Exactly at ten minutes past four he had brought out the car, shut in close with its black hood and side curtains he had packed mr greathead's suitcase and placed it in the car with his umbrella railway rug and travelling cap also in a bundle the clothes that his victim would have gone to london in he stowed the body in the two sacks beside him on the front by hard draw pass halfway between east thwaite and shaw there are three round pits known as the churns, hollowed out of the grey rock and said to be bottomless. Stephen had thrown stones, big as a man's chest, down the largest pit, to see whether they would be caught on any ledge or boulder. They had dropped clean, without a sound. It poured with rain, the rain that Stephen had reckoned on. The pass was dark under the clouds and deserted. Stephen turned his car so that the headlights glared on the pit's mouth. Then he ripped open the sacks and threw down, one by one, the seventeen pieces of Mr. Greathead's body, and the sacks after them, and the clothes. It was not enough to dispose of Mr. Greathead's dead body. He had to behave as though Mr. Greathead were alive. Mr. Greathead had disappeared and he had to account for his disappearance. He drove on to Shaw Station to the five o'clock train, taking care to arrive close on its starting. A troop train was due to depart a minute earlier. Stephen, who had reckoned on the darkness and the rain, reckoned also on the hurry and confusion of the platform. As he had foreseen, there were no porters in the station entry, nobody to notice whether Mr. Greathead was or was not in the car. He carried his things through onto the platform and gave the suitcase to an old man to label. He dashed into the booking office and took Mr. Greathead's ticket, and then rushed along the platform as if he were following his master. He heard himself shouting to the guard, "'Have you seen Mr. Greathead?' and the guards answer nah and his own inspired statement he must have taken his seat in the front then he ran to the front of the train shouldering his way among the troops the drawn blinds of the carriages favoured him stephen thrust the umbrella the rug and the travelling cap into an empty compartment and slammed the door to he tried to shout something through the open window but his tongue was harsh and dry against the roof of his mouth, and no sound came. He stood, blocking the window, till the guard whistled. When the train moved he ran alongside with his hand on the window ledge, as though he were taking the last instructions of his master. A porter pulled him back. "'Quick work, that,' said Stephen. Before he left the station, he wired to Mr. Greathead's London hotel, announcing the time of his arrival. He felt nothing, nothing but the intense relief of a man who has saved himself by his own wits from a most horrible death. There were even moments, in the week that followed, when, so powerful was the illusion of his innocence... He could have believed that he had really seen Mr. Greathead off by the five o'clock train. Moments when he literally stood still in amazement before his own incredible impunity. Other moments when a sort of vanity uplifted him. He had committed a murder that for sheer audacity and cool brain work surpassed all murders celebrated in the history of crime. Unfortunately, the very perfection of his achievement, Doomed it to oblivion. He had left not a trace. Not a trace. Only when he woke in the night a doubt sickened him. There was the rusted ring of that splash on the dairy floor. He wondered, had he really washed it out clean? And he would get up and light a candle and go down to the dairy to make sure. He knew the exact place bending over it with the candle. He could imagine that he still saw a faint outline. Daylight reassured him. He knew the exact place, but nobody else knew. There was nothing to distinguish it from the natural stains in the flagstone. Nobody would guess. But he was glad when Mrs. Blinkiron came back again. On the day that Mr. Greathead was to have come home by the four o'clock train, Stephen drove into Shaw and bought a chicken for the master's dinner. He met the four o'clock train and expressed surprise that Mr. Greathead had not come by it. He said he would be sure to come by the seven. He ordered dinner for eight. Mrs. Blinkiron roasted the chicken, and Stephen met the seven o'clock train. This time he showed uneasiness. The next day he met all the trains and wired to mr greathead's hotel for information when the manager wired back that mr greathead had not arrived he wrote to his relatives and gave notice to the police three weeks passed the police and mr greathead's relatives accepted Stephen's statements backed as they were by the evidence of the booking office clerk the telegraph clerk the guard the porter who had labelled Mr. Greathead's luggage, and the hotel manager who had received his telegram. Mr. Greathead's portrait was published in the illustrated papers with requests for any information which might lead to his discovery. Nothing happened, and presently he and his disappearance were forgotten. The nephew who came down to East Thwaite to look into his affairs was satisfied, His balance at his bank was low owing to the non-payment of various dividends, but the accounts and the contents of Mr. Greathead's cash-box and bureau were in order, and Stephen had put down every penny he had spent. The nephew paid Mrs. Blink-Iron's wages and dismissed her, and arranged with the chauffeur to stay on and take care of the house, and as Stephen saw that this was the best way to escape suspicion, he stayed on. Only in Wesleydale and Rathdale excitement lingered. People wondered and speculated. Mr. Greathead had been robbed and murdered in the train. Stephen said he had had money on him. He had lost his memory and wandered goodness knew where. He had thrown himself out of the railway carriage. Stephen said Mr. Greathead wouldn't do that. But he shouldn't be surprised if he had lost his memory. He knew a man who forgot who he was and where he lived. Didn't know his own wife and children. Shell shock. And lately, Mr. Greathead's memory hadn't been what it was. Soon as he got it back, he'd turn up again. Stephen wouldn't be surprised to see him walking in any day. But on the whole, people noticed that he didn't care to talk much about Mr. Greathead. They thought this showed very proper feeling. They were sorry for Stephen. He had lost his master, and he had lost Dorsey oldershaw And if he did half kill Ned Oldershaw, well, young Ned had no business to go meddling with his sweetheart. Even Mrs. Oldershaw was sorry for him. And when Stephen came into the bar of the king's arms, everybody said, "'Good evening, Steve,' and made room for him by the fire. Stephen came and went now as if nothing had happened. He made a point of keeping the house as it would be kept if Mr. Greathead were alive. Mrs. Blinkiron, coming in once a fortnight to wash and clean, found the fire lit in Mr. Greathead's study and his slippers standing on the end in the fender. Upstairs his bed was made— The clothes folded back, ready. This ritual guarded Stephen not only from the suspicions of outsiders, but from his own knowledge. By behaving as though he believed that Mr. Greathead was still living, he almost made himself believe it. By refusing to let his mind dwell on the murder, he came to forget it. His imagination saved him, playing the play that kept him sane the murder became vague to him and fantastic like a thing done in a dream. He had waked up, and this was the reality. This round of caretaking, this look the house had of waiting for Mr. Greathead to come back to it. He had left off getting up in the night to examine the place on the dairy floor. He was no longer amazed at his impunity. Then suddenly, when he really had forgotten... It ended. It was on a Saturday in January, about five o'clock. Stephen had heard that Dorsey Oldershaw was back again, living at the King's Arms with her aunt. He had a mad, uncontrollable longing to see her again. But it was not Dorsey that he saw. His way from the lodge kitchen into the drive was through the yard gates and along the flagged path under the study window. When he turned on to the flags, he saw it shuffling along before him. The lamplight from the window lit it up. He could see distinctly the little old man in the long, shabby black overcoat, with the grey woolen muffler round his neck hunched up above his collar, lifting the thin grey hair that stuck out under the slouch of the black hat. In the first moment that he saw it, Stephen had no fear. He simply felt that the murder had not happened, that he really had dreamed it, and that this was Mr. Greathead come back, alive among the living. The phantasm was now standing at the door of the house, its hand on the doorknob as if about to enter. But when Stephen came up to the door, it was not there. He stood, fixed, "'staring at the space which had emptied itself so horribly. "'His heart heaved and staggered, snatching at his breath. "'And suddenly the memory of the murder rushed at him. "'He saw himself in the bathroom, "'shut in with his victim by the soiled green walls. "'He smelt the reek of the oil stove. "'He heard the water running from the tap.' He felt his feet springing forward and his fingers pressing tighter and tighter on Mr. Greathead's throat. He saw Mr. Greathead's hands flapping helplessly, his terrified eyes, his face swelling and discoloured, changing horribly, and his body sinking to the floor. He saw himself in the dairy afterwards. He could hear the thudding, grinding, "'scraping noises of his tools. "'He saw himself on hard-draw pass "'and the headlights glaring on the pit's mouth, "'and the fear and the horror he had not felt then "'came on him now. "'He turned back. "'He bolted the yard gates and all the doors of the house "'and shut himself up in the lighted kitchen. "'He took up his magazine, the autocar, "'and forced himself to read it. Presently, his terror left him. He said to himself it was nothing, nothing but his fancy. He didn't suppose he'd ever see anything again. Three days passed. On the third evening, Stephen had lit the steady lamp and was bolting the window when he saw it again. It stood on the path outside, close against the window, looking in. He saw its face distinctly the greyish stuck-out bud of the underlip and the droop of the pinched nose the small eyes peered at him glittering the whole figure had a glassy look between the darkness behind it and the pane one moment it stood outside looking in and the next it was mixed up with the shimmering picture of the lighted room that hung there on the blackness of the trees mr greathead then showed "'as if reflected, standing with Stephen in the room. "'And now he was outside again, looking at him, "'looking at him through the pane. Stephen's stomach sank and dragged, making him feel sick. "'He pulled down the blind between him and Mr. Greathead, "'clamped the shutters to and drew the curtains over them. "'He locked and double-bolted the front door,' "'all the doors, to keep Mr. Greathead out. "'But once that night, as he lay in bed, "'he heard the shoop shoop of the feet "'shuffling along the flagged passages, "'up the stairs, and across the landing outside his door. "'The door-handle rattled, but nothing came. "'He lay awake till morning, "'the sweat running off his skin, "'his heart plunging and quivering with terror.' when he got up he saw a white scared face in the looking-glass a face with a half-open mouth ready to blab to blurt out his secret the face of an idiot he was afraid to take that face into east thwaite or into shaw so he shut himself up in the house half starved on his small stock of bread bacon and groceries two weeks passed and then it came again in broad daylight. It was Mrs. Blink-Iron's morning. He had lit the fire in the study at noon, and set up Mr. Greathead's slippers in the fender. When he rose from his stooping and turned round, he saw Mr. Greathead's phantasm standing on the hearthrug dose in front of him. It was looking at him and smiling in a sort of mockery, as if amused at what Stephen had been doing— It was solid and completely lifelike at first. Then, as Stephen in his terror backed and backed away from it—he was afraid to turn and feel it there behind him—its feet became insubstantial. As if undermined, the whole structure sank and fell together on the floor, where it made a pool of some whitish, glistening substance that mixed with the pattern of the carpet and sank through. That was the most horrible thing it had done yet, and Stephen's nerve broke under it. He went to Mrs. Blinkiron, whom he found scrubbing out the dairy. She sighed as she wrung out the floor doth. "'Eh! These are yellow stands. scrub as ye will, they're nair looked in.' "'Nah,' he said. scrub and scrub, you'll nair get them clean.' She looked up at him. "'Eh, lad!' What ails ye? Ye've got a face like a rum dushed-out hanging over to sink. I've got the colic. Aye, and no wonder with the damp and the misties and your own bad cooking. Let me run down to King's Arms and get you a drop of whiskey. Nah, I'll go down missin. He knew now he was afraid to be left alone in the house. Down at the King's Arms, Dorsey and Mrs. Oldershaw were sorry for him. By this time he was really ill with fright. Dorsey and Mrs. Oldershaw said it was a chill. They made him lie down on the settle by the kitchen fire and put a rug over him, and gave him stiff hot grog to drink. He slept. And when he woke he found Dorsey sitting beside him with her sewing. He sat up and her hand was on his shoulder. "'Lay still, lad.' "'I on get up and go.' "'Nay, there's no call for e to go.' Lay still, and I'll make thee a cup of tea. He lay still. Mrs. Oldershaw had made up a bed for him in her son's room, and they kept him there that night, until four o'clock the next day. When he got up to go, Dorsey put on her coat and hat. "'Is thou going out, Dorsey?' "'Aye. I? I cannot let thee go up and set there by the inn. I'm coming up with thee till night-time.' She came up and they sat side by side in the lodge-kitchen by the fire, as they used to sit when they were together there, holding each other's hands and not talking. "'Dorsey,' he said at last, "'what hast thou come for? Hast thou come to tell me thou now speak to me again?' "'Nay, thou knowest what have come for.' "'To say thou'll marry me?' "'Aye.' "'I'm marry thee, Dorsey. Twouldn't be right.' Right? What does that mean? do not be right for me to come and sit with thee this road if I don't marry thee. Nay, I dare Thou said thou was afraid of me, Dorsey. I don't want ye to be afraid. Thou said that be unhappy. I don't want ye to be unhappy. That was last year. I'm not afraid of thee now, Steve. Thou don't na me, lass. Aye, I know thee. I know the sick and starved for want of me. That canna live without thine old lass to take care of thee. She rose. I'm on gone now, but I'll be up to-morrow and the next day. And to-morrow, and the next day, and the next, at dusk, the hour that Stephen most dreaded, Dorsey came. She sat with him till long after the night had fallen. Stephen would have felt safe so long as she was with him but for his fear that Mr. Greathead would appear to him while she was there, and that she would see him. If Dorsey knew he was being haunted, she might guess why. Or Mr. Greathead might take some horrible blood-dripping and dismembered shape that would show her how he had been murdered. It would be like him—dead—to come between them as he had come when he was living. They were sitting at the round table by the fireside. The lamp was lit, and Dorsey was bending over her sewing. Suddenly she looked up, her head on one side, listening. Far away inside the house, on the flagged passage from the front door, he could hear the shoop-shoop of the footsteps. He could almost believe that Dorsey shivered. And somehow, for some reason, this time he was not afraid. Stephen, she said. "'Dist I hear anything?' "'Nah. No but twinned under two rogues.' She looked at him, a long, wondering look. Apparently it satisfied her, for she answered, "'Ay, maybe. Tis no but twinned,' and went on with her sewing." He drew his chair nearer to her to protect her if it came. He could almost touch her where she sat. The latch lifted. The door opened, and, his entrance and his passage unseen, Mr. Greathead stood before them. The table hid the lower half of his form, but above it He was steady and solid in his terrible semblance of flesh and blood. Stephen looked at Dorsey. She was staring at the phantasm with an innocent, wondering stare that had no fear in it at all. Then she looked at Stephen, an uneasy, frightened, searching look, as though to make sure whether he had seen. That was her fear. That he should see it. That he should be frightened. That he should be haunted. He moved closer and put his hand on her shoulder. He thought, perhaps, she might shrink from him, because she knew that it was he who was haunted. But no. She put up her hand and held his, gazing up into his face and smiling. Then... To his amazement, the phantasm smiled back at them, not with mockery, but with a strange and terrible sweetness. Its face lit up for one instant with a sudden, beautiful, shining light. Then it was gone. Did thou see him, Steve? Aye. Hast thou seen anything afore? Aye, three times I've seen him. Is it that I scared thee? Who told thee I was scared? I nod because now it can't happen to thee, but I on not What dost thou think, dorsey I think thou needna be scared, Steve. he's a kind ghast. Whatever he is, don't mean thee no arm to old gentleman nor did when he was alive Didn't he? Didn't he? He served me the worst turn he could when he combed between thee and me. Whatever makes thee think that, lad? I don't think it, I no. Nay, love, thou now.' He did, he did, I tell thee. Don't thou say that? she cried. Don't thou say it, Stevie? Why shouldn't I? Thou'll set folk talkin' that road. What do they know what to talk about? If they was to remember what thou said. And what did I say? Why, that if anybody was to come between thee and me, that would do them in. I was wasna thinking of tin. God knows I wasna. They don't, she said. Tha knows? Tha knows I didn't mean him. Aye, i na, Steve. And, Dorsey, thou might afraid of me, thou might afraid of me any more. Nay, lad, I love thee too much. I shall now be afraid of thee again. Would I come to thee this road if I was afraid? Thou'll be afraid now. And what should I be afraid of? Why, im. Him? Him? "'I should be a deal more afraid to think of e sitting with im up here by the Seine. When they come down and sleep at once?' "'That I want "'But I shall set ee on to road past tomorrow. moor.' "'He went with her down the bridle path and across the moor, "'and along the main road that led through East Thwaite. "'They parted at the turn, where the lights of the village came in sight. "'The moon had risen as Stephen went back across the moor.' The ash tree at the bridle path stood out clear, its hooked, bending branches black against the grey moor grass. The shadows in the ruts laid stripes along the bridle path, black on grey. The house was black-grey in the darkness of the drive. Only the lighted study window made a golden square in its long wall. Before he could go up to bed he would have to put out the study lamp. He was nervous, but he no longer felt the sickening and sweating terror of the first hauntings. Either he was getting used to it, or something had happened to him. He had closed the shutters and put out the lamp. His candle made a ring of light round the table in the middle of the room. He was about to take it up and go when he heard a thin voice calling his name. Stephen. He raised his head to listen. The thin thread of sound seemed to come from outside, a long way off, at the end of the bridle path. Stephen. Stephen. This time he could have sworn the sound came from inside his head, like the hiss of air in his ears. Stephen he knew the voice now. It was behind him in the room. He turned and saw the phantasm of Mr. Greathead sitting, as he used to sit, in the armchair by the fire. The form was dim in the dusk of the room outside the ring of candlelight. Stephen's first movement was to snatch up the candlestick and hold it between him and the phantasm, hoping that the light would cause it to disappear. Instead of disappearing, the figure became clear and solid, indistinguishable from a figure of flesh and blood, dressed in black broadcloth and white linen. Its eyes had the shining transparency of blue crystal. They were fixed on Stephen with a look of quiet, benevolent attention. Its small, narrow mouth was lifted at the corners, "'Smiling, it spoke. "'You needn't be afraid,' it said. "'The voice was natural now, quiet, measured, slightly quavering. "'Instead of frightening Stephen, it soothed and steadied him. "'He put the candle on the table behind him "'and stood up before the phantasm, fascinated. "'Why are you afraid?' it asked. Stephen couldn't answer. He could only stare, held there by the shining, hypnotizing eyes. You are afraid. it said, because you think I'm what you call a ghost, a supernatural thing. You think I'm dead and that you killed me. You think you took a horrible revenge for a wrong you thought I did you. You think I've come back to frighten you. To revenge myself in my turn, and every one of those thoughts of yours, Stephen, is wrong. I'm real, and my appearance is as natural and real as anything in this room, more natural and more real if you did but know. You didn't kill me, as you see, for here I am, as alive, more alive than you are. Your revenge consisted in removing me from a state which had become unbearable, to a state more delightful than you can imagine. I don't mind telling you, Stephen, that I was in serious financial difficulties, which, by the way, is a good thing for you, as it provides a plausible motive for my disappearance. So that, as far as revenge goes... THE THING WAS A COMPLETE FROST. YOU WERE MY BENEFACTOR. YOUR METHODS WERE SOMEWHAT VIOLENT, AND I ADMIT YOU GAVE ME SOME DISAGREEABLE MOMENTS BEFORE MY ACTUAL DELIVERANCE. BUT AS I WAS ALREADY DEVELOPING RHEUMATOID ARTHRITIS, THERE CAN BE NO DOUBT THAT IN YOUR HANDS MY DEATH WAS MORE MERCIFUL THAN IF IT HAD BEEN LEFT TO NATURE. AS FOR THE SUBSEQUENT ARRANGEMENTS, "'I congratulate you, Stephen, on your coolness and resource. "'I always said you were equal to any emergency "'and that your brains would pull you safe through any scrape. "'You committed an appalling and dangerous crime, "'a crime of all things the most difficult to conceal, "'and you contrived so that it was not discovered "'and never will be discovered.' And no doubt the details of this crime seemed to you horrible and revolting to the last degree. And the more horrible and the more revolting they were, the more you piqued yourself on your nerve in carrying the thing through without a hitch. I don't want to put you entirely out of conceit with your performance. It was very creditable for a beginner. Very creditable, indeed. But let me tell you, This idea of things being horrible and revolting is all illusion. The terms are purely relative to your limited perceptions. I'm speaking now to your intelligence. I don't mean that practical ingenuity which enabled you to dispose of me so neatly. When I say intelligence, I mean intelligence. All you did, then... "'was to redistribute matter. "'To our incorruptible sense, "'matter never takes any of those offensive forms "'in which it so often appears to you. "'Nature has evolved all this horror and repulsion "'just to prevent people "'from making too many little experiments like yours. "'You mustn't imagine that these things "'have any eternal importance.' "'Don't flatter yourself. You've electrified the universe. "'For mine's no longer attached to flesh and blood. "'That horrible butchery you were so proud of, Stephen, is simply silly. "'No more terrifying than the spiffing of red ink on the rearrangement of a jigsaw puzzle. "'I saw the whole business, and I can assure you I felt nothing but intense amusement.' "'Your face, Stephen, was so absurdly serious. "'You've no idea what you looked like with that chopper. "'I'd have appeared to you then and told you so, "'but I knew I should frighten you into fits. "'And there's another grand mistake, my lad. "'You're thinking that I'm haunting you out of revenge, "'that I'm trying to frighten you. "'My dear Stephen, "'If I'd wanted to frighten you, I'd have appeared in a very different shape. "'I needn't remind you what shape I might have appeared in. "'What do you suppose I've come for?' "'I don't know,' said Stephen in a husky whisper. "'Tell me.' "'I've come to forgive you, "'and to save you from the horror you would have felt sooner or later.' and to stop your going on with your crime. You needn't, Stephen said. I'm not going on with it. I shall do no more murders. There you are again. Can't you understand that I'm not talking about your silly butcher's work? I'm talking about your real crime. Your real crime was hating me. And your very hate was a blunder, Stephen. You hated me for something I hadn't done. Aye, what did you do? Tell me that. You thought I came between you and your sweetheart. That night when Dorsey spoke to me, you thought I'd told her to throw you over, didn't you? Aye, and what did you tell her? I told her to stick to you. "'It was you, Stephen, who drove her away. "'You frightened the child. "'She said she was afraid for her life of you. "'Not because you half-killed that poor boy, "'but because of the look on your face before you did it. "'The look of hate, Stephen. "'I told her not to be afraid of you. "'I told her that if she threw you over, "'you might go altogether to the devil.' that she might even be responsible for some crime. I told her that if she married you and was faithful, if she loved you, I'd answer for it you'd never go wrong. She was too frightened to listen to me. Then I told her to think over what I'd said before she did anything. You heard me say that. Aye, that's what I heard you say. I didn't know. "'I didn't na I thought you'd set her again me. "'If you don't believe me, you can ask her, Stephen. "'That's what she said to other night, "'that you now nah come between her and me. Now?' Nah. "'Never,' the phantasm said. "'And you don't hate me now?' Naw, Na I should ate it ee i should never laid a finger on thee if i'd none it's not your laying fingers on me it's your hatred that matters if that's done with the whole thing's done with is it is it if it was none i should have to hang for it mona give my son up tell me mona give my son up "'You want me to decide that for you?' I don't go,' he said. "'Don't go!' It seemed to him that Mr. Greathead's phantasm was getting a little thin, as if it couldn't last more than an instant. He had never so longed for it to go, as he longed now for it to stay and help him. "'Well, Stephen,' Any flesh and blood man would tell you to go and get hanged tomorrow, that it was no more than your plain duty. And I dare say there are some mean, vindictive spirits even in my world who would say the same, not because they think death important, but because they know you do, and want to get even with you that way. It isn't my way. I consider this little affair is strictly between ourselves. There isn't a jury of flesh and blood men who would understand it. They all think death so important. What do you want me to do, then? Tell me, and I'll do it. Tell me. He cried it out loud, for Mr. Greathead's phantasm was getting thinner and thinner. It dwindled and fluttered like a light going down. Its voice came from somewhere away outside, from the other end of the bridle path. "'Go on living,' it said. "'Marry Dorsey.' "'I dare not. She done I killed thee.' "'Oh, yes.' The eyes flickered up, gentle and ironic. "'She does.' She knew all the time. And with that, the phantasm went out. End of chapter 6